Okay, today I'm actually at my place. Dave Massey's come to me, talking to Dave Massey. Um, thanks for agreeing to talk to us, Dave. No problem. Um, so you currently write for GG's, The Sporting Life, write paddock notes for uh, Blue Delta, work on course, and get a few quid punting too. Yeah. Are you uh, sort of an on-course man generally? Um, I would say um, I would say my time is probably divided between both uh, work at home, the writing work, and and the on course. I would say I get more the on. I would say I'm more on course in more on course in the summer, um, through the summer months. Because I mean, it, as you know, it tends to be tends to be busier on course with the bookmakers. They tend to do most of their business, you know, between sort of Easter really, and then August. But well, after the August bank holiday, it starts to become a bit of a stretch. So um, as far as the on course work goes. More in the summer. Through the winter, I do tend I do tend to do a few bits and pieces. Um, I work more for um, S and D bookmakers in the winter because they take me on to work at Southall, which is my local track. It's only sort of twenty minutes down the road, really. So um, now, obviously, they're having that's their own problems of their own there at, at Southall at the moment. But um, still doing a few bits and pieces there. Uh, so yeah, between the two, you know, it's fifty fifty overall in a year, but. I would say in the summer I'm, I'm more on course. Okay, I and mean, what, what what do you do with the bookmakers on course? Uh, just a workman, but I enjoy doing what I do. So I work for, let's go through them. I work for uh, my main employers are MT Racing, Morley Collin. I also work for S and D in the winter and a few times in the summer as well. I do do Royal Ascot for them. Uh, I do probably about half a dozen days a year for Martin and Leicester, a um, couple of days a year for Spinning Mate, all sort of around the, the Midlands region. Um, and I enjoy what I do. I enjoy that that sort of retail, the retail aspect, which we'll come into later. I used to work in retail. I think a lot of, of bookmaking these days, you know, um, is about retail. It's about giving customer service and having spent a good proportion of my life before I came into racing doing that. Um, I think that puts me a bit of an uh, puts me at a bit of an advantage. Yeah, I enjoy I enjoy doing what I do. And the the GGs and the sporting life that goes in sort of works in tangent with it, in yeah. parallel, I should say. Yeah, the 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 GG stuff. Um, Matt Bisogno approached me probably about two years ago now, a little bit over. I mean, GGs is a very data driven website. It's all data, you know. It's hard data, which is great because punters want data these days. Um, but Matt said we need an antidote to that. He says, and your colour pieces. Um, might be ideal. So I write about my experiences as a, as a workman, and um, <laughs> you know the, the the strange and weird things that happen uh, on a, a on a regular basis, such as you know the, the, the I've worked um, Boxing Day at Kempton for the first time uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, never worked that before, and um, it was quite a, quite a strange experience. First of all, getting up at sort of ridiculous o'clock on a Boxing Day. To get down there and then you know you're dealing with a family crowd generally speaking i was working in the silver and so you're dealing with a family crowd and how do you say to somebody no you can't have two pound fifty each round constitution hill you you can't do that if they'd said to me should i bet this winner each way then you, you know but if, if a if a customer comes to you and says i want two pound fifty each way constitution hill it's not for me to say no you can't do that i mean you know we, we took we took a couple of bets on, on constitution hill and the other guy had a tenner at 11s on I did hear of a bet, by the way, in the in the main ring. Somebody had a hundred each way, Constitution Hill at uh, one to eleven. Uh, might, might, might have been one to ten. Might have got the value. Might have been one to ten. But you do hear these things. So all these things, you know, people think they don't. You know, nobody, nobody does something like that. Well, they do. And so you know, I sort of put all that in a 
a colour piece for Gigi's every now and then. And the sporting life? Yeah, we've been doing that now for about three and a half, four years now with Rory. Um, they came to us and they just said, look, we need, we, we, we've got nobody that does day of race content. A lot of the stuff, not just for the sporting life, but obviously, you know, the post as well and other, it's, it's all done in advance. Um, they haven't got anything for day of race. And they said, we think you two guys would be, you make a good team. We've seen your stuff before. So um, we've been doing that now. We've been doing the punting pointers column for about, say, I think, I think we started it in the October. So yeah, we're getting on for about sort of three and a half years now. We've been, we've been doing that. And um, thankfully, successfully, they keep it, they, they seem to keep us on. So we're doing something right. You say day of race content. Well, explain what you mean. Okay, so a lot of um, a lot of tipping, I think, for these websites tends to happen before the actual day. There's very few that put something up on the day. I mean, Hugh Taylor's always done it. You know, sort of around about twenty past nine, and that's similar to what we do. We sort of put up about um, between nine thirty and ten o'clock in the morning. We will put our our content up. We'll look at. Um, any market moves that have happened overnight, that sort of thing that may, may or may not affect what we're, what we're going to do. So by day of race, I mean, we actually put our selections up on the day rather than previous. Yeah, and I assume you're not in the same room. So how does it work? Yeah. I see, I, I probably don't see, I probably see Rory three times a year, usually at the races. So we have a, a call, we'll have a WhatsApp call every morning that usually lasts about 45 minutes. 35 of that will be us shouting obscenities at each other and sort of <laughs> doing doing awful impressions, that sort of thing. My partner's laughing her head off over there because she sits there and listens to the nonsense that we come out with. Um, most of the course, if ever the course came out, most of them are just unprintable. We'd be out of a job in about five minutes, but that's not the point. Um, and then we sort of discuss the day's racing as well in there. We'll have already written the stuff. Everything will be written the day before or even or even two days before in, in some cases when you've got, when, you, when, when we're dealing with all weather racing, I'm, you know, and you know what you know what the surface is going to be, so I can sort of crack on with Southern, all the Southern stuff, forty-eight hours in advance, that sort of thing. So then, on the morning, it's a case of dissecting what we've got. Let's say we've got five races that we've written up. How many of these do we still want to actually publish? Is the price still there? Is it value? Um, has anything changed to the race overnight? As suddenly the you know two or three of them non-runners and the, the the shape of the race has changed, that sort of thing. So we'll we'll dissect that. <coughs> go through and we normally end up with sort of in the week one or two bets um per day sometimes sometimes more sometimes less depending on what the racing's like so what are you looking for when you're uh, put you right in the deep end what are you looking for when you're looking for a winner when you when you open that first 48 hour de declarations um what am i looking for um i think first of all i go through every race that i might be half interested in we do tend to sort of stick to handicaps you know, all eight handicaps where the form is on the table. So you know what you're dealing with. There are less unexpected variables there, I think. So we'll go through that separately. We'll each, we'll, we'll each do that. We'll, we, we may have decided in advance that the races that we want to have a look at. And then if you like, we sort of, you know, we, we draw a Venn, Venn diagram of it all at the end and see what comes out in the middle. What, what we look for, what we each look for. And this is probably where it comes in uh, where the two of you come in as a, as a pair quite handy is he might look for different things than I'm looking for. I'll be looking for, let's say, for argument's sake, you know, a race where there's no pace and there's an obvious pacemaker. One will be an obvious pacemaker. So then you can home in on that a little bit and say, OK, right, as this got its conditions today, 
you know, is it the right trip? Um, is it the right ground for it? That sort of thing, and then sort of whittle it down. If it's not, you just leave it and you move on to another race. Um, and Rory will be looking for more, Rory tends to look for more historical evidence of a horse. He's got a, his mind is, he's, he's got a really historical mind and he, he, he knows what horses can do. I tend to forget that more. I tend to sort of focus more on what data is in front of me at the time, whereas Rory will go, ah, I know what that can do. Um, and so he sort of, that's where his start point, whereas mine is more what's in front of me at the time. Um, I, do, I do think ground is a very important key. I think that's probably, particularly when you're dealing with extremes and you're dealing with good to firm and firm ground and you're dealing with soft bordering on heavy ground. I think at that point, you can look at a race and go, right, well, that, you know, in the past has run five times on heavy and it's disappointed every time. So you can rule that out and you can rule that out. The more evidence you've got for that, I think the better. I do think ground is, is an important thing, particularly on, with the jumps racing. Um, pace, I think, is important. Um, I get the idea of sectionals. I'm starting to use them more and more now. Um, I still struggle a bit with some of the data, some of the sort of stride length and cadence and all that. That still goes over, still goes over my head a little bit, but it doesn't seem to be affecting what we do. So I'm not, I'm not particularly worried about that yet. But that's um, how we start. Rory, let's say he's quite an opinionated chap. <clears throat> so, is is there ever any sort of dispute about you know that's a load of nonsense what you come up with? Yeah. Yes. All the time. Absolutely, and this is where again it's sort of the two of you because one of us can get very enthusiastic about a selection and the other one go, "Hang on a minute, have you considered this?" You know, and suddenly you know, ah, yeah, no. A key, often, often a key one is a horse that's that's missing headgear, you know, and you you get really enthusiastic and then you've missed that little that little P for B or a B and it's missing and it's like ah, oh, you know, yeah, and then it only runs its best when it's got the headgear. Quite often you'll miss that, or something else, or you'll miss the trip, or something. So the two of us feed off one another, and yeah, we do. Um, we do miss winners. I mean, we we put each other off winners. We can we have done that in the past, Ma many many moons ago, Simon. When we first started doing this, we invoked what's called now the Cloudy Glen rule, which was when I I put up uh, I put Cloudy Glen up for the uh, what would it be twenty twenty yeah twenty twenty. Well, what we call the Hennessy, us Oldens, what we call the Hennessy, whatever it was that year, the Ladbrokes Trophy or whatever. And I said, I think Cloudy Glen's got a really good chance. And he, uh, his words were, if we put Cloudy Glen off, I'm going to come around there and I'll have to kill you, basically. We're gonna, we can't put this off, it's got no chance. And of course, Cloudy Glen went and won at a big price, I think it was about 33 40 on the day. So we, I didn't forgive him for that for quite a while. It was a good, a good month before I forgave him that one. Um, but we did invoke the Cloudy Glen rule, which is now... If a selection that we one one of us fancies is a thirty-three to one chance or bigger at the time of publication, it can't be blackballed by the other one. We can't. You can't knock it out. It doesn't matter how spurious the reason. You can't. You can't kick it out. And it's worked. You know, there's been a couple of times. He's certainly had a couple. I've certainly had a couple where, you know, we, we fancy one at a big price and we we put it up and the other one doesn't like it, but it's it's gone and won. So, it we we, we had to invoke that rule so it didn't so it never happened again. I assume that, well, you're a punter, a serious punter yourself anyway. I, I will say I'm a serious punter. I, I'm more serious about it now, certainly in the last sort of three or four years than perhaps I was. I used to have too many bets, too many smaller staking bets and what have you, but now I've sort of, I revised that sort of three or four years ago. I wouldn't, I'm, I'm certainly not a professional punter. I know when I did the HWPA video, they put me in as a professional punter. That's not true. I'm not a professional punter and I never claimed to have been. And 
I don't think you can call yourself a professional punter if you're doing writing jobs or media jobs or something else that you know provides a backup for you. To me, a professional punter is someone that bets for a living and that's it. You know, they've got all that pressure of you know you've got to find a winner, otherwise you ain't eating tonight. Whereas we have the luxury of you know knowing that at the end of the month, you know the bills and the mortgage is going to be paid, even if even if the punting that month is dreadful. Okay, so would your work for um, not GG, so that's colour pieces, but for sport and life, also be part of your punting day. Very much, yeah. Um, what I what I put up on the on the sport in life, um, it's what I bet. You know, I'm not put, we're not putting something up on there and then you know, on the sly going back in something else. We're not doing that. Um, what we put up on there is what we bet. Um, we may uh, one annoying aspect, I suppose, of of putting a bet up at half past nine. We've and this is something that's that's we've had numerous times is we will agree on a horse that we quite like and but the price isn't there at half past nine let's say for argument's sake you know we, we back it at six to one but it's four to one so okay right you know we we might leave the right up in and just say we like this but it's not the price that it is and then blame me we'll get to race time and it'll be an eight to one nine to one chance and it'll romp home and you, you, see, you know, you know and we have a lot of those that drip, but we can't put them up at the time because we don't think the price is there, so they don't go on the P&L. Are you one of these people that can price a race up but can't tell us how you do it, like all of them? Yeah, correct. <laughs> it's just it is it is though, isn't it? It's it's a it's a dark art, isn't it? It's just one of those you get used to it. You just sort of do it, and right here's the tissue. Um, you'll put your tissue up for yourself, and. The thing is, Simon, when you first start doing your own tissue, you think you're miles out. Oh, I must be miles out. I've put this in at five to one. It's in at 20. What, I'm, what I've missed something. I've done something wrong. The number of times that it'll come to race time and it is five, six, seven to one or whatever, it's a lot nearer your price. So you've got to believe in your own tissue. You've got to believe in your own tissue. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. And I am wrong a lot of the time. But you've got to believe in your own tissue. Otherwise, it's no good. And what sort of price variance would make you not have a bet? Oh, good. That's a good question. Um, not much of one, ten, fifteen percent tops. I would say from where I'd want it to be would would make me not have a bet. No, you deal with it if it wins, and you haven't. Well, you haven't. I, you try and say to yourself, "Well, you've not lost. You've not lost." But as as Caroline will tell you, sometimes my partner sat over there. Yeah, it's it's a hard one to swallow. So. Okay, Dave, we do like a bit of honesty in these <laughs> interviews and your manager, Caroline, and lovely wife said, you deal with it badly. So that's like everybody else that's watching this, probably. Thanks, love. <laughs> right then. So, paddock watching. Um, yes. You mentioned in the beginning that you watch, uh, you write paddock notes for uh, the mysterious sounding Blue Delta. I mean, what sort of information do you tell them and how useful to them is it um yeah well, blue delta the, the the name of the company i think it's i think it's called betting school is the the actual sort of company the, the fronting as it were if bettingschool.com and they've got various um tipping services and whatnot under under that umbrella um and what i started doing um was putting um well i was sort of doing it about 18 months ago for a different company and it didn't quite work out with them and i thought there was something in it um i've been you know, since I've been going racing, really, it's it's been something that it was something I was I was very interested in, but didn't really know how to do. And back in the day at um, back in the day at Southall, we used to have a very good. There used to be a, a very good 
uh, paddock watcher there called Alison, who uh, I think she's still on. I think she's still on Twitter. Uh, paddock pick. She's an excellent, excellent paddock watcher. She would literally just go down there with a sheet of paper, blank sheet of paper. Didn't look at a race card. Didn't look at form. Blank sheet of paper. One, two. If there are eight runners, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and she'd write by the side of it each one what she thought of each horse and I used to watch her doing it and sort of learn from her really um, the best ways of, of, of paddock watching and what to look for and, and that sort of thing so I started I say we started doing um, my own paddock notes a while ago um, and then Blue Delta sort of became quite interested in maybe putting it out there as to people as, as a service if they want to read my notes what I've written about each horse at a certain meeting which I, I, I do virtually every meeting these days anyway every every meeting i go to even if it's just a quiet mid midweek meeting there'll be something there of interest generally speaking you get more benefit maybe from it early season when you see horses that aren't fit having their first or their second run of the season that sort of thing but equally you know for novice hurdles you can pick out horses for the future um that you think will be i think will be winning shortly once they go handicapping that sort of thing um and it's something that i it's something that i enjoy doing um it's it's become part of the punting pointers armory as well now. Going back to sort of part one, you said, what do you look for when you're looking at a race? Equally, I'm looking for horses that I you know I've seen in the flesh, and I thought, well, that'll definitely come forward for a run, or I want to be that want to be with that next time when it goes handicapping, because you know a lot of times at the races you see things that the cameras miss, you know, and I don't just mean in the paddock. I mean in the race itself. You know, they're watching the ones up front. You know, and the camera focuses in on the front two or three as they're battling down. I'm sometimes watching what's happening in behind as well. And you can often see a horse that's been tailed off halfway down the back, actually finishing off quite well into sort of fifth, sixth. And you think, oh, well, that's quite interesting. That's hit the line quite hard. Wants to step up in trip, go handicapping. And that's worked, that's worked a couple of times, two or three times for as well this season. So, Okay, for people like me that don't have a clue about horses in the paddock, just give us a real layman's negatives and positive to look for. Um, I think fitness is the, the main thing that you look for. Now, this stage of the season, most of them are fit because they've usually had a few runs. As I say, early season, that's a different thing. Um, how, do you tell, how do you tell if something's fit then? Um, well, not fit is more likely. Yeah, it? I think not fit. You're looking for muscle definition around the sort of middle neck areas around its belly. You're looking for um, some, some rib cage. Well, not too much. You know, you need some some evidence that it's it, it's fit um, at the back of the horse at the at the, at the, at the rear, sort of you know looking for def good definition, muscle definition, that sort of thing. Those sort of things tell you whether it's 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 in good shape or not. And if they're if they're lacking any of that, then generally speaking, they'll be they'll be needing a run or two. I have got that badly wrong a couple of times this season. Um, I, I laid what, what was the name of the horse? Oh, Neil King's horse, Look Away. It's a huge beast of a horse, and the first time I saw it at Cheltenham, I thought, "Well, that's nowhere near fit," um, and it absolutely destroyed them. It romped time, and I <laughs> went and laid it for a few quid. So that was that was costly. But at least I know then the next time I see the horse and it looks like that, it's not unfit. And again, this is all sort of part and parcel of looking at a horse and going, "Right, okay, well, I know that's fit now." So next time I see it and it looks like that, that's fine. And so of course the next time I saw Look Away and it looked exactly the same. Exactly the same. I thought, okay, fine. Don't fall into the same trap again. It is fit, and of course, it ran really well again. So, I suppose, and if that happens, and you see it again, and it looks fit, then you got the double. Correct. And you know, a lot of a lot of people might have looked at that, and if they'd never seen those before, go, oh, I don't think that's fit. Well, you know, it's fit because you've already seen it before, in in the same conditions. So. Would this all be in your head, or do you like take photographs or anything like that? I don't take photos. Everything goes down as, as notes, though. I do sort of, you know, put notes down for 
for every for every horse that's of, of, of interest in a race yeah afterwards usually the day after or the day after that so, so within 48 hours don't for meetings that you can't get to don't yeah you, don't you feel a bit blind yes a little bit yeah it'd be you know it'd be great if i mean at least living in the midlands it gives me options to go north and south for, for meetings and um as caroline will testify quite often i'll i'll pick a couple of meetings maybe down south i know in a um, middle of February there's like a Fontwell and a Sandown together that I'm coming down for and staying down I will try and get around the country and see as many as I can it's not it's not easy you know but um, I do what I can yeah when you when you don't get to a meeting yeah you sometimes particularly so when you get to Cheltenham for example when we get to the festival I went to see the Irish horses but they'll all be fit anyway they should all be race fit anyway if you're turning up at the festival and you're not race fit then you know something's not right yeah. Now you said you mentioned that the, you were inspired by the lady that used to Alison. Yeah. yeah. Did she actually give you the eye and teach you how to what you're looking yeah, for? Yeah. Sort of, yeah. In a, in a way. Yeah. She was sort because of, I I tell you to her she spotted things that you wouldn't even dream of looking for and yeah she 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 taught me what she told me what to look for yeah um, and then from there I mean I, I, she doesn't come racing anymore which is a real shame it'd be great to see her back again but um, she's uh, she did very much sort of teach me what to look for and now your punting how long have you been a winning punter not long <laughs> three or four years since i started doing it properly really i suppose is the is the honest answer i was a casual punter before then um i enjoyed punting um but it was um it was one of the other bookmakers said to me he says you pick some really good price winners i says but you don't make the most of it and that sort of sat me set set me thinking I thought yeah I'll probably do have too many bets and you got to home in a bit more on you know when you when you really like one and, and you know the price is when you know the price is wrong that's when you should really sort of step in and it doesn't matter whether it's a 20 to 1 shot or a, a 3 to 1 shot if you know the price is wrong that's when you should step in and, and get involved I think so I've heard people say in the past that they learnt how to bet would you say that's what the difference was yeah I'd say exactly that yeah, you you learn you learn through experience, don't you? You know, you, it, it doesn't matter how you learn. I mean, I was, I was placing bets when I was sort of sixteen years old, and going into the local independent bookies and whatnot. You know, I just got told to take my school tie off back in those days. Just take your tie and blazer off, Dave. You know, sort of thing. So, um, and I, I I remember one of the I remember one of the first jobs I ever had. As we'll touch on in a bit, I was I was back in the day. I was on a YTS. Remember those, the youth training scheme mm. back in the 1980s. I was in the Prince's on a £26.50 a week, of which 15 quid went to my mum for board. They left me with £11.50 a week. I remember really fancying one at Devon and Exeter because it had broken the, uh, the track record. Devon and Exeter, now mm. we're going back. It had broken the track record the time before. And I thought, oh, this must be a good horse. This must be a great horse. It's broke the track record. And I had, of the £11.50, I had a tenner of it at 7 to 4, and it got stuffed. And then, of course, you realise that it's running on different ground. You know, it was it's broken the track record because it was racing on bone hard ground, and this time it's good to soft, and it couldn't handle the conditions. And then you you sort of you live and learn. That's how you learn these things. You know, oh, don't do that again. And that's always stuck with me. That one, I, you know, these things stick with you. you know, don't do that again. Don't do that again. Don't do that. And eventually, you learn up a you, you build up a list of do's and don'ts, and you, you teach yourself, I suppose, as you say. Yeah, when when we were um, corresponding before we did this, I was quite surprised that you're <coughs> relatively late. <coughs> sort of yeah. into the game professionally because you for me you seem to have been around forever I've, I've recognised your face do I? I'm not that old but um, but just going back to the beginning I mean yeah. you, you tell me you loved maths at school I did yeah, that yeah. was uh, 
It's quite unusual maths. for a kid to love maths. I did. I love. I always love maths. Always love numbers. Always love maths. And um, my my son has developed the same. <laughs> my son has developed the same love of, of of numbers. He's he's in the computer science at the moment. He's at Manchester Uni in his last year doing computer sciences. Yeah, maths was up. up and again, um, I passed my maths O level um, a year early. I did. Or was it two years early? It might have been two years early. But I, I, numbers just came very easily to me. Hated English, hated French, hated pretty much everything else at school, but math lessons. I had a good teacher as well, in uh, a guy called Mr Kinsey, who was a lovely guy and uh, a big Derby County fan like myself. And he liked a bit of racing as well. I know I, there was a time when one got round, there was, there was one got round school, um, Used to be an old novice chaser, I think Fred Winter, and it called Drummer Downey, and it was in it was in it was in the Reynolds Town when the Reynolds Town used to be midweek at Ascot. Uh, I think it used to be on the Wednesday or the Thursday, something like that. And I really fancied it, and you know I'd sort of told a few of the kids at school, I think this will win. And of course, the dinner money was flying in on it, and I was you know taking it all down. And then we got a maths lesson. I think maths was just before lunch, and Mr. Kinsey sidled up to the side of me, and he says. Uh, Word as it, you've got one at Ascot this afternoon, Massey, he says. And uh, I said, yeah, I said, yeah, I said, I think Drummer Downey will win, sir. I think it'll win, sir. I said, do you? Do you? He says, okay, okay. And he says, and he, he says okay. if Drummer Downey wins, he says, he says, I won't dish out any homework, he says, on Friday. So, of course, I was the most popular kid in school for about three days, <laughs> for about three days after that. Uh, it was great, yeah. So, um, I had a good teacher and enjoyed the subject anyway, so. Now, would maths be more helpful as a bookmaker or a punter? I suppose as a bookmaker, but I think you've got to know some maths as a punter as well. You could probably get away without not knowing maths as a punter. I, I mean, I know a lot of different types of punter. I know some punters that don't go anywhere near a paddock, for example, and they still win at the game. And I know punters who will just, they you know, just back winners is their motto. You know, don't matter about the price. Oh, that'll win. I'll back that. And, you know, there are different types of punters, so I don't think you need to necessarily... I mean, for me personally, yes, I, I I think it's important, but you don't have to, I suppose. As a bookmaker, I think you've got to, you certainly had to know your maths. Again, these days, everything's so computerised, half of it's done for you, but you still got to know your maths, I think. Is, is there a maths angle for you when you're deciphering a race? Only in so much as, good question, only in so much as the prices I would have said. Um, but yeah, I suppose, look, you know, all the things like, I mean, pace is maths. You know, you got to, you, you're looking at, when you're looking at things like that, I mean, that's, that's math to an extent and, you know, how fast can a horse go and can it sustain the gallop for, for six furlongs or whatever, if it, if that's the length of the race. So there is maths involved. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people that are in, involved and, and punters were racing. I bet if you asked them, they'd say they were good at maths at school. Yeah. And the, what do you, would you say, I mean, I've seen the GGs, it baffles me of all the all the information that's on there yeah. is there too much information sometimes you can complicate yourself into uh into now, a stew it's a funny thing because i've spoken to, i've said this to caroline before and she'll testify you know you th there are times when you wonder how our forefathers ever back to winner because they didn't have all this information at their fingertips and some of them were still successful but yeah i think as things have evolved i mean you know all weather racing i think all weather racing is a, a a key element of, of using data because generally speaking, not all the time, but generally speaking, you, you, you're talking about a consistent surface that doesn't change. So that's a big variable taken out of things. 
it, it can change from meeting to meeting, you know, if it's if it's rained heavily or whatever and it's quickened the surface up. But generally speaking, you're dealing with a consistent surface. So, you know, you, you're looking for horses that have dealt with that surface in the past and have they got their same conditions today? We, you know, we, yesterday was a key, yesterday a perfect example. We, we put one up at Newcastle last night that um, we know acted well on the surface and had had the change of headgear, which is, a, that, that was the key thing with the horse. Whenever it has a change of headgear, it always runs well. Change of headgear last night, it got beaten nose. So you've got those variables in place and you've got patterns. I think that's what probably what I'm trying, those same patterns, you're looking for a pattern with these horses. And once that pattern evolves and comes around again, then that's the time to back the horse. I just want to, for the final bit of this part, I just want to go back to the pricing. So you've priced one up, you've <coughs> had it nine to two chance. Yep. It's gone off a well back two to one favourite and yep. went off the track. Mm -hmm. Now, you were wrong. Would you say <coughs> you were wrong with your pricing? So you missed the winner because you priced it wrong or were there other elements that came into play that made it a lot shorter than it should have been? Yeah, it can be six or one half, nothing to the other, I think. Yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll get it wrong and sometimes it can be other elements on the day that, that change things. I think it's... It's just it's part and parcel. If you, I think if you you miss a winner, you miss a winner, and it's you just have to do the best you can and accept that that you've 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 got it wrong and for whatever for whatever reason. Sometimes I mean you know you, you know there are other variables at play. You can just have you can just have sheer bad luck. You've got everything right. You've 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 selected the correct horse. The price is right, and then it finds itself in a pocket a furlong out. Can't get out. By the time it's got out, sprinted in, you've got to be half a length. You think, oh, you know. And then, then the telly gets it. That's when the telly gets it, you know, you know, and I need, we need to ring up Curry's and get a new telly because that one's gone over, that sort of thing. But it is, so there's so many variables that can affect something. Um, <laughs> taking, them in, taking them in your stride isn't always easy, but you just have to accept it. Okay, Dave, we talked about um, all the information that's available to the punters these days, you know, how did they ever find mm -hmm. a winner just using the super form or whatever? Yeah. Um, so what, what tools do you use for your own personal punting? Um, I use the, I use the Gigi's website. I use Timeform. I use the Racing Post and I use my own notes. Those are the, were the, the four key things. Um, uh, I, I think, um, I think between those between those four things, you know, I can I can pretty much shape a race up and, and, and price it up properly. He says, hopefully. So how much? How many hours do you put in per race or per meeting? Good question. Uh, depends on the meeting. Um, again, this is where the sort of two-way thing with Rory comes in. Um, there are certain meetings that we leave to the other because they're very good at reading them. He's good at Kempton. I leave him to read Kempton. I couldn't pick a winner at Kempton. I I can't remember. I cannot remember the last time I had a bet there on the all-weather. I can't remember it. Um, but he's good with Kempton, so I trust his judgment with that. He trusts mine with Southall, for example. Um, Wolverhampton, we'll, we've both got half an idea with that sort of thing. So there are certain meetings that I won't even look at because I'll lead them to Rory. And there are, and the same over the jumps as well. I, I, don't, I don't tend to look at the Scottish racing quite so much because I don't, again, I haven't seen those horses. I don't... I have a I have a feeling that with Scottish racing they because it's a, a smaller pool of horses and they tend to meet each other quite a bit they all end up going up to false marks they all end up beating one another over a season and they all end up on marks that are perhaps a little bit too high um, horses horses from the north coming down to the south I always look that that's an angle that I sometimes look at I think they might be badly handicapped against a bigger pool of horses 
so that's that's always something i look at it's not always necessarily the case of course but you know that's that's an angle that i look at um so i tend to look at how long would i spend i probably spend i probably spend about three hours looking at a meeting i would say and i tend to look at, at one and maybe two meetings a day at most so i sort of log on and i sort of, you know start work about nine in the morning speak to Rory, and then from there sort of till mid afternoon um I'll, I'll spend looking at tomorrow's cards so how many personal bets would you have in a week too many still probably um less so now a lot less than i used to three or four years ago um i would say as far as racing goes sometimes i don't have a bet you know going back if it's if you know for argument's sake if it was kempton and musselburgh i wouldn't take a lot of notice to be honest but i probably wouldn't have a bet um, i'd just be concentrating on tomorrow's racing anyway um um if if it interestingly i have less bets at a weekend now than i used to used to you know used to think oh saturday racing to the bill and end all but actually I've probably less bets now in the week than i do if, if if a subtle meeting is on you know and there are six low-grade handicaps on the card i might have a bet in them all if i find a price that's wrong so it depends depends on the day really and and what the racing is like that day is there something that triggers a bet the price being what I want it to be, yeah. So is and, I will bet, and I will, and I will bet more than one in a race if necessary. You know, if I think two, if I think there's a bad value favourite there, and I think that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I will back all three of them. Um, sometimes I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to go to Leicester tomorrow if it's on. At the minute, as it stands, I haven't got a bet on the card. I had a look at the racing yesterday. I had a look at it yesterday. Had another quick look this morning. There's maybe one I'm half interested in, but that doesn't mean I won't go there tomorrow. Look at the paddock and go, okay no 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 that's the one you know and then from there have a quick look make sure that the conditions are right and maybe i will have a bet but you know tomorrow might just be a, a day out with with friends four friends and you know just enjoy myself as much as anything okay now the bookmakers that you work for would you do a card for them no um what well, <laughs> if you if you speak to if you speak to some on-course bookmakers they'll tell you there's nothing worse than a front man with an opinion Damn! Don't want to know. No interest. Don't tell me what you think. All that sort of stuff. Now, that's maybe the change. Maybe that's changed a little bit. I know. Um, I know Morley will sometimes, you know, for for MT or sometimes ask me what I fancy and whatnot. Rob certainly at Sovel, Rob Speechy and and Jason. You know, I'll I'll go to them and say, you know, well, I'd keep that one on side or I keep that one on side at the prices. That sort of thing. And I might sort of say to him that one will probably get backed as well because we, again you, you sort of tend to know which of the ones to sort of um, keep, as it were, uh, for for, lay, for laying purposes, all that sort of thing. So, uh, no, I don't do a card, I don't do a card for them. They'll, they'll quite often ask me if they, you know, if I'm at the races and they'll say, you know, what do you fancy Dave? Pino does it a lot. What do you fancy Davy Boy? Always calls me Davy Boy. What do you fancy Davy Boy? What should I be laying Davy Boy? That sort of thing, you know, so you, you just go and have a word and whatnot. But no, I don't, I don't do a card for them. Anything I sort of do is for me. Okay, so... You had a job in a supermarket, yes. going back to the early days, which 16. enabled you to spend a lot of time in the betting shop, oh, but yeah. you weren't honing your trade then, you were doing your money. Mm. I was doing my money, yeah, to start with, I was doing my money, definitely. I used to go up there and um, I used to, I became, I could I could talk for an hour simply on, you know, the, the sort of punting adventures I had when I was, you know, in my, from 16 onwards almost, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, working... W I had to get a job when I was 16. I couldn't stay on for further education. Um, needs must. We had to bring some money. We had to have money in the house. Um, and I went out and as I said, I got literally the first job 
I could find, which was, you know, at the local supermarket on a YTS, £26.50 a week. My mum took 15 quid of that. So, although I still got £11.50 and I thought that was, you know, you live like a king back in the 1980s. £11.50, it was great. Then um, then I got I got promoted, I got put in the warehouse and I became the warehouse manager and suddenly I'm on 140 quid a week. What the hell is this? 140 quid a week? What? You know, you think you're the king of the world, don't you? Um and I started going up to the, the local book. The local bookmakers was no more than 200 yards away. I could sort of slip out the back of the store and up there and back, having placed a bet, and no one would even know I'd gone missing, you know, sort of thing. So, and I became really good friends with a, a guy up there um, who's sadly no longer with us called Peter Bannister. He was like a father figure to me. My own father was, was long gone by this point. And, um, and Peter got me into as many bad habits as you'd like to care to name. Um, First of all, going to the Greyhounds. I was brought up on the Greyhounds initially. You know, I didn't go racing until I was sort of well into my 20s. But up to that point, you'd find me at Vernon Street in Derby three times a week with the Greyhounds. We used to we used to get a lift. Um, and there was about four or five of us in the car. And it was great. I used to love it. You know, the chatter and all that sort of stuff. And the expectation and the hope for the night and all that sort of stuff. And I did meet my first disciplined punter, a guy called Rupert, who had notebooks notebooks for every every year and he knew what every dog could do and he knew what every dog was at, you know in its best trap and that sort of thing. we used to have a lot of handicap racing at, at derby and he loved what he used to love was a stayer off the front if, if there was a dog that stayed well off the front if it's still in front going into the last two arcs it, it'll get it they won't catch it they won't catch it he'd say and he, he'd wait all night he'd wait all night to have one bet maybe in the last and he was the first sort of disciplined punter that I met and he I got some learning from him that you had to wait you know if you wanted one bet um still never did I still you know I'd still have three or four bets on the night or whatnot you know on on tips that were flying around from trainers and whatnot but you know but you do you you, you do pick up little nuggets from people and you learn you do learn so with the uh greyhounds were you sort of taking it seriously with the form and stuff like that or yeah a just... bit yeah a bit more yeah that was sort of like the first one and again because you get to see those dogs every week and whatnot. And, and handicap racing, I got taught how to read handicaps. You know, you allow uh, 0 0.08 a length uh, in, in time. You allow 0 0.08, so if a dog's got a 12-metre start, you know, it should you, you should take some average times and then take 0.96 off of it, and that's what it should be able to do on the night, that sort of thing. So, so yeah, um, but Peter, yeah, as, as well as sort of going to the dogs, Oh, he just you know, we we started going we started going to solo races a few years later, and I, again I could tell you an hour's worth of stories from that alone. But um, he taught me he taught me all the bad habits. I always remember the, um, the the first the first time I ever placed a bet at John Woods, which was the bookmakers I used to use. Peter was on the counter that day, and the first bet I ever placed was thirty pence on a dog at Hackney on a Saturday morning. And the dog won. I think one of about fives, and I got like one pound eighty back. And is he? And is he? I'm going to swear here, so apologies for this if you're of a, a sensitive nature. And Peter pushed me the one pound back, one pound eighty back, and he looked at me and he goes, "It's fucking easy this game, isn't it?" He says, <laughs> and that was that was it. That was it. You know, I was sort of like, but everybody burst out laughing behind him. You know, all the staff are laughing the heads off of one. I couldn't. Have, I couldn't have been eighteen, Simon. I must. Have, I must have been. I must have been about sixteen at the time. And that's that's it, isn't it? When your first bet's a winning one, it's an easy game, isn't it? This. So me and Peter became great, great friends, and in and in time, he introduced one or two others as well. And um, yeah, they introduced they they taught me every bad habit that uh, I've probably got today. Right. So you're um you're actually at a proper job 
for yeah. over a decade working yeah. for HMV. Oh yeah, yeah. So Loved you were in, in music, um, music bus. Yeah, if I wasn't doing the racing stuff now, I'd still be with. Um, I'd probably still be with HMV. Um, moved into that. What sort of early nineties? I suppose it would be late eighties, early nineties. I started working with HMV. Um, music was always a, a big love. Um, I say you know in in terms of hobbies, racing first, and music was a pretty close second. Used to go gigging quite a lot. Um, I was very much an indie boy, I think, back in the day. I've, as I've as I've become older, my tastes have become a bit more, a bit more. What's the word I'm looking for? Carolina go was eclectic or noisy, wouldn't you? Something like that. But yeah, um, uh, it's 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 grown. I I, t I do tend to like I like to find new old things. That's probably the best way of describing me these days. Started listening recently to the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. I didn't realise how good they were. You always think they're a joke group, and then you start listening to the music, and it's actually, you know, as trad jazz goes, it's really good, that sort of stuff. So I'm always trying to find new things to listen to, but not necessarily new things to listen to, if that makes sense. And during that time, obviously, you were still punting. Had you, yeah. had you hit the winning vein at that point? Uh, we'd had good, well, I suppose then I'm still not taking it seriously. So we'd have good days and bad days. I had... Um, Others within HMV that liked to bet as well. And we used to just, we used to do daft things like, you know, or put a few quid in and we'd have a lucky 15 on the day or something like that. And again, I suppose, you know, looking back now, that's half the reason I suppose the punting pointers works because if you've got four people all picking one out, you're all going to do it in a different fashion. You're all going to use your own methods. I don't think it, I don't think it matters what method you use as long as you find a winner or two. If you, you know, it, if what you do works for you, then, you know, stick with it. And they and we did yeah so we had some we had some good days then and um, I still wasn't taking it seriously I was still more I suppose then I was still more greyhounds at that point than I was horse racing early nineties although uh, I suppose the, it was starting to swing a little bit more by that point I suppose because I was going racing a bit more as well going to Utoxter on the bus quite a bit and Wolverhampton I used to get taken to Wolverhampton a bit as well so. All right, David, so I said earlier in it, you relatively came relatively late into a full-time sort of immersement in, yeah. this, in this game. Um, you, loved your, you loved your music, you worked for HMV for a decade, and then basically the full-time role in racing was thrust upon you because they, they give yeah. you the tin tack. Yeah, it was, um, it would have been 2013, I think it was 2012, 2013, around that time that... Um, HMB started having all those, started having their financial problems. Um, but they, they bought upon themselves, unfortunately, a lot of it. But still, they were they were they were very late to to digital music. HMV, I think they thought it was going to be a bit of a. I know they thought it was going to be a fad and would die out, and people would soon come back to CDs again. Of course, it never went that way. Uh, it moved far more. To, it moved very quickly to digital, and um, they just weren't prepared for it. They weren't ready, and by the time they got an offering out. It was too late, you know. Others had already taken that space. So, um, but anyway, that's that's by the by. I was working. Where was I at the time? I was assistant manager at Burton on Trent at the time. Little store, nice little store actually. Um, and we started to get wind, sort of late November. Something wasn't right. Um, when deliveries didn't start turning up, and it didn't take long to work out that we were in sort of financial peril and what have you. And after the Christmas of that year, um, they cut about a third of the stores. 
that were the least profit making or were losing money um, and Burton was one and they couldn't find me another position at the time which was a shame um, and it meant I had to get a job you know go and get something else and having sort of done retail up to that point I had for a couple of years been sort of uh, sort of blogging at an amateur level you know putting a few tips up and, and you know general racing chit chat all that sort of stuff um, and I, sort of, I thought right well now's the chance and if I'm going to get a job in racing now's the chance I'm not going to get a better opportunity I've got a few quid from redundancy all this sort of stuff so I don't need a job tomorrow so had you yeah. been hankering after a job in racing had it been in the back of your mind had I been hankering after a job in racing I suppose it had always been there yeah I'd like I'd like a job in racing yeah you know I'd, I'd love a job doing some doing a writing job in racing it would have been great um but of course the opportunity never arose and when you're in a job Simon it's it's hard to get out of it you know you sort of the comfort of having that job but when you've not got a job and it pushes you to do something different um I thought that was I thought that was the time so I sort of you know put a few feelers out anybody got any racing jobs and what have you they sort of you know writing jobs and, and what have you um Andy came along, Andy Weller came along, I became good friends with Andy and I certainly, he certainly helped me out in the, the early days. Um, I used to uh, go around and, and he, he had a few horses in those days, Andy did, and he, he used to make me laugh a lot and he still does. He's, he's a good friend now, a really good friend. Um, I remember the first time I ever met him was at Ludlow. He said, oh, come and have a chat to me at Ludlow and see what we can do. And I, I went to Ludlow and he got a, he got a runner there with Lorne, with Lorne Hill, uh, a horse called King Caractacus. And he said, I'll come into the paddock. And I went into the, went into the paddock with him. And I was, it was the first time I'd ever, ever been with an owner or anything like that. I sort of stood with him. And he sort of thing. He says, um, and King Caractacus walked past us. And uh, he went round. He walked past us again. And Andy's like looking at the horse. And he looks at Law and he says, tell me why we bought this bloody thing, will you? And I thought, is this how, oh, is this how I'm going to speak to the trainers? Is this it? You know, are they all this rude to them? Is, is this really how rude they are? Of course, it's just, it turns out it's just Andy. You know, that's that's his name. And Lorne was well used to his tricks and his capers and whatnot, and she just gave it back in space. So they're all these people have all become you know great friends to me now, which is which is nice. I got um, a couple of small jobs to get you know start me off, to get me going, um, which has sort of evolved. But I got yeah, you do get I got I did get pushed into to racing a little bit at that point. It was sort of a case of well, it's, it's now or never. If I if I don't get anything, I think I, I knocked on a you know, you're knocking on doors quite a bit, and and you know, I would say to anybody that wants a, a job in racing, don't give up. Keep knocking on doors. I know a, a good friend of mine. I won't I won't say her name, but she got a, a job within the BHA last year after numerous attempts, um, and she wasn't going to go again. She's like, I'm fed up of getting knocked back. So you've got to go because if you don't try, and she got the job, which was great. I was really pleased for her. And you, those are the things you've got to do. Um, I think definitely getting um, uh, becoming a member of the HWPA and getting a, getting an RTA pass that definitely opened that that definitely helps. I think once you do that, then um, people start taking you a bit more seriously. It's hard. It's, it's a hard game to climb up in. I think sometimes racing, um, but yeah, um, I am where I am, and I'm very happy now with what I've got. I don't really want a great deal more. I'm, I'm delighted with what I've got, you know, and. Every time you ha every time I have a bad day, I still you know think to yourself, well, you could still be you know working behind a desk somewhere and you know commuting all that sort of stuff. You know, my my only commute most days is down to the kettle, you know, 
in the morning that's that's a great commute isn't it you know you walk down the stairs put the kettle on get the toast on and, and away you go you know so I'm, I'm very grateful for what I've got and I've got a lot of people to thank for that along the way you know a lot of people have, have, have given me a hand up which is which I don't forget it's, it's been great um, can you tell us I know you, you're not allowed to, you don't want to say too much but can mm. you tell us a bit about what you were doing for Andy to get you your toe well, in in the first place of, yeah he just he uh, I was just sort of Andy liked to bet and I was just sort of helping him out trying to find you know bad value for, he, he, he liked to oppose bad value favourites and I was sort of doing that a bit with him you know we were sort of if, if I thought if I thought a, a favourite was too short um, and was worth taking on I'd be you know I'd be letting Andy know and I thought um, yeah he, he, that that was basically his modus operandi at the time but it was great just going around with Andy anyway just sort of looking at his horses as I say he had them with he had them with Lorney, and I think he had a few with Charlie Mann as well. And then, of course, he had his Grade One winner with um, Warren Gretrix. Uh, he had uh, One Trap Mind winning the uh, the three miler at, at Punchestown was his his Grade One winner. That was his his, his big white hope, and it, it came good for him. Unfortunately, I was ill and couldn't go to Punchestown that year. Which, which was just, so the one time he had his big winner, and I couldn't be there with him, which was a real shame. But um, yeah. It was. Uh, it, he he certainly helped me in the in the beginning. Yeah. So it was actually quite a good ease in to having responsibility by giving people your advice yeah. and then having to live by the results mm. to build you up to what you're doing now with yeah. um, the sporting life and stuff. Yeah. Um. The 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 racecourse bookmaking part of it. You'd say this. You're not just, but you're a workman for yeah. other people that are making the decisions. Mm. Ha having seen what you see now, would you ever be? Do you ever think about that seriously becoming a racehorse bookmaker? I think the setup costs are too great these days, to be honest, for me to do such a thing. I mean, you can, yeah, okay, you can set yourself up and buy a little pitch somewhere, I suppose, and you can rent your gear off your mate and all that sort of stuff. But I look at some of it and think it's 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 hard work that side now. I think bookmaking, um, you know, their their costs go up every year. Their expenses are constantly going up and. Race course attendances aren't exactly, you know, flying through the roof every year on year on year. You know, generally it's a, it's a decline. So the game's getting harder, not easier. I think for for bookmakers, um, and a, a lot of tracks, you know, they they do they do bet very very strong. A lot of them, they don't. I think a lot of them don't give themselves a chance half the time because they they're betting so near the so near the knuckle. Um, so I think it's hard to be. I think it's hard being a bookmaker if you've been established and you've got yourself started. You know, over over the years. It's it's probably a bit easier, but I think for somebody looking to get into the game now, I would say um, I would say it's a lot harder. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I've no inclination really to go that side of things. The tracks you've been talking about aren't the, you know, there's all the all weather tracks and yeah. the, the smaller tracks. So when you see people on Twitter and places saying, "Oh, whatever the bookmaker takes it, just green it all up," I mean that's not really a feasible thing to do, is it? Yeah. So you've got to, have you got to be opinionated at tracks like that? Seeing what you see with your the people you work for, yes, you, I suppose you have. Yeah, you've got to be opinionated because you are. Just say so you. Yeah. It, they're good tracks for punters to go to. You know, if you if you if you like if you like having a bet, you really should go to these some of these old weather tracks. Because I say you're getting great. You'll be getting tremendous value. You're virtually getting bet fair price without without commission a lot of the time. And and one thing I have seen over the last sort of two to three years, the bigger punters are coming back to the tracks. They can't get on online and they are coming back to the tracks. I know, I won't say the name of the horse, but I know sort of a couple of weeks ago, um, 
you know a couple of owners turned up for a horse and one had a grand on one had one had a monkey on and it won and he said i don't know and he picked up and he said i don't know where we'd be without you lads he said i don't know where we'd be you know he, he couldn't have got that money on online he wouldn't have had a, a county now chance of getting it on but you know we have seen um we have seen a a return certainly of, of bigger staking punters over the last probably probably three years i would say okay and finally your punting is now successful and you have you sort of upscaled as yeah. the years have gone on yeah. so without prying too much but it's prying a bit <laughs> what would be the percentage of your income from punting can you just not listen to this bit? Caroline's over For there. people that can't see, Dave's talking to his wife, I, Caroline. I would say... I'm trying, trying to work this out in my head now because I've got like plenty of fingers and two bank accounts here and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. It'd be a hard one to call. I, I, I would say probably somewhere between 10 and 15 it would be, I think, as a percentage. I mean, it's... Um, Caroline's saying up. I don't think it is. I think it's somewhere between ten and fifteen. I would say. So would you would you keep fastidious records and you know is everything written down? Do you know? Could you tell me exactly where you are? If there you would were have been there would have been a time when I, I would have logged bets, but these days your accounts tell you that anyway. If you log into your whatever you whatever account you're using, your heels or your whatnot, the bets are all there for you. Anyway, it tells you whether you you know you're doing well or you're not doing well. So less so now. I don't need to log every bet and all that sort of stuff. There would have been a time I would have done that, perhaps, you know. When, perhaps mid '90s, somewhere like that, into the early 2000s, I was probably logging them and realizing, and probably realizing I was losing. So that might be why I stopped doing it, because you're sort of depressing yourself with an Excel spreadsheet. Oh, well, hang on a minute, I backed all these winners, and yet, you know, so that's probably why, I, probably so, why I stopped doing it. At the so, time. what about your staking? What's your staking system? Um, as I say, everything, everything that's on the um, the sporting life, I back myself. Uh, I would say these days one point for me is, is a pony, twenty-five pounds. So if I put a, you know, a one point win, I'll be having a pony on it. Um, you know, and, and likewise if it's if it's you know half a point each way, that sort of thing. Sometimes sometimes I'll go in again if the price drifts. If I really fancy something and I think that's a fair price originally at half nine, and it drifts, I may go in again and take an average price, and then perhaps lay a little bit of that off near the near a race time if it's come back to where I think it is, but. But I'm, I'm, I've never been a massive staking punter. I think the biggest bet I've ever had is probably, I think I had, I think I, I probably two hundred and fifty pounds is the biggest thing I've ever had on a horse. He did win, thankfully. Um, but generally speaking, these days I would say, I, and I think as a punter, and, I, and you know, and I am, you know, I'm putting a bit on. I think you've got to have a partner that understands that. Caroline does. I'll go through bad periods. You'll have a bad week or whatnot, and but you've, I think you've got to have somebody that understands that. You know there are going to be ups and downs when you when you're punting. So, um, and that's perhaps not always been the case in my life. If I'm being honest, you know, you, be, if you're with somebody that's very risk averse, then and you're doing that, then it's it's difficult. But I'm with somebody now that that understands that, don't you, dear? Yes, she yeah. she's put a thumbs up. She's put a thumbs so up. you're betting a pony a point. Yeah. To people watching it, listen after listening to some of the other sort of punters we've interviewed, they think, oh, you know, that's not a lot. But would no. you struggle to get the pony a point on? No, I can get that on. That's fine. I've got, I've got some accounts that are mine. <laughs> so the final question, Dave, the, mil <laughs> the million dollar, the million dollar question. <laughs> Bookmakers everywhere looking for pony bets. Um, so, I just, would you, 
if it all went tits up with yeah. every, all the things oh, you yeah. do, would you consider? Would you think you think you could survive as a professional punter? Oh, good question. Caroline's nodding. Yes, she thinks I could. I. It's a difficult. As I said, I think going back when the pre, the pressure's on you to find a winner. You know, it, it, when you're having that bad run, and every tipster has a bad run. Every tipster has a bad run. You you look at. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who it is. You know, we all hit those runs where you cannot, for love nor money, find a winner. Could I cope with that? Could I cope with that down? That's the question, isn't it? Um, I I don't know personally. That's a good question. I, I don't know if I can honestly answer it right now. Whether I could do it full time or not. Um, it'd probably mean up in mistakes again because I don't think you're going to be. You know, you can't live off twenty five pound a point when you've not got the the luxury of having other jobs. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I'm, t- I'm tempted to err on the cut out of question and say probably not, but I don't know. Caroline says I could, but we'll see. Okay, well, on that <laughs> note, Dave Massey, thank you very much. Thank you very much.